Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com, and we cover the world of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We have a very worldly podcast for you this week. I am going to talk to Stephen Garrett, making his triumphant return to our stages about uh, his adventures at the Toronto International Film Festival, which is ongoing, uh, but will have concluded by the time you listen to this. And I'm also going to talk to the cursed Adam Hirschfelder, who I cursed with um, enduring and absorbing the entire works of Taylor Sheridan. He is our correspondent for the Yellowstone universe, and he's going to talk to me about Uh, developments in the Yellowstone universe, troubles in that, and also about Taylor Sheridan's new uh, Paramount Plus show, Special Ops Lioness, which was a big hit this summer. But first, it is time to once again revisit the Hollywood strikes. Jake Harris will be here to talk to us about uh, this week in scabbing, I guess, for lack of a better term. Some um, talk show hosts are making curious decisions to resume production of their programs despite uh, a lot of striking and a lot of labor unrest. And we'll be right back after this musical interlude to talk to Jake about that. I have made the difficult decision to continue doing this podcast without writers, despite the fact that the WGA and SAG are on strike. I feel like I owe it to myself because I need something to do. Uh, So here we are on the podcast and Jake Harris is here to talk about um, this week in scabbing, I guess is the, is the best way to describe what's going on. There, there have been some developments uh, recently in the writer's strike as the, as the um, fall TV season is starting. Some talk show hosts have decided to uh, come back without writers. And uh, Jake Harris uh, wrote about that for us this week. Hello, Jake. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So this week's um, big scab I guess that we're picking <laughs> is, is Drew Barrymore, uh, who kind of surprised everyone by deciding to um, resume production of her talk show, the Drew Barrymore show. Uh, she said, I own this decision and I'm boy, she's wearing it. I'll tell you, at least on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if her audience cares much, but man, it's been ugly. Tell us a little bit about what's going on there. Yeah, and it was it was a surprising thing for a lot of people because back in uh, May she was supposed to host the uh, MTV Movie and Music Awards, and so she said that she was not going to do that, uh, citing the strike and the WGA uh, and SAG-AFTRA guilds. Um, but as of uh, this recording, it's gonna this is a Friday, so on Monday uh, the next season of the Drew Barrymore Show is going to go on uh, without its three WGA writers. Um, So Drew Barrymore is going to be writing most of the material and presumably will just be having guests on to talk about anything and everything but whatever they have worked on in the past uh, couple months or year. She can can host musicians. She can have cooking segments. She can have some self-help segments. It's not like a daytime talk show is lost without Paul Rudd, for instance, although he helps helps, uh, brighten any proceedings. But uh, yeah, but it's just kind of weird. And there's been reports. uh, People have been... We've been picketing outside the studios in New York, and uh, the WGA has been handing pins to audience members. The staff has been kicking people out of the studio for supporting the strike. 
kicking audience members out. Yeah, there were uh, there were a lot of reports uh, last week. Two people showed up uh, that they had gotten free tickets to show tapings for this upcoming season that they're currently making so that they can have some episodes in the can. Um, and the picketers gave them two, you know, support the WGA pins to wear as they went in. And uh, they were kicked out. And then the, as they were kicked out, they were like, well, we're just going to join the picket lines anyway. And so they were out there with the actual Drew Barrymore show writers outside the CBS offices <laughs> picketing the show. And then there were reports uh, the next day after they kicked people out that Drew Barrymore show staffers had been searching audience members bags for any WGA pins or anything that would support unions. It's just ridiculous. It's like, of course, most people are going to support the unions. You know, I mean, I get it. And on, on, on the one hand, you know, there are other people besides writers uh, and actors who work in television, you know, they're, they're the technical staff and camera people and sound people and lighting people and makeup people, et cetera. These people need to work as well. You know, they're, they're, and they're the majority of Drew Barrymore's right. employees. Um, there's, so there's no question. And they're not getting hardship pay, you know, unlike WGA people can uh, apply for hardship pay. They don't, they don't have um, any other real options for work. That said, given that Drew Barrymore is at least started as an actor before she became a talk show host, it's just a weird move politically, you know, and then she was supposed to host the National Book Awards. So obviously, like, she has some sort of cachet, I guess, as a host these days, and that was rescinded immediately. Well, of course, like, you know, the National Book Awards is a, is a writer's uh, award. And if you're, if you're showing, you know, lack of solidarity with writers, of course, the National Book Award, you know, it's not like she was... Uh, she was hosting, you know, the Westminster Dog Show or something. You know, this this is a direct insult to uh, yeah. the profession. So I don't know. I mean, I get it, but it's it's just kind of weird. And then also on in the um, on the topic of weird, uh, Bill Maher is going to be in production, and that's a really written show. Like um, Drew Barrymore show obviously had segments and it's written, uh, but Bill Maher has you know new rules and he has his opening monologue and he has the the sort of mid uh, conversation shtick. You know, so that's like, you know, half the show is written, hard written, and he's going to resume and has been saying some sort of like anti-writer stuff, which is just bizarre to me. I mean, I know that Bill Maher is kind of considered an alt-right figure in some ways, but I think it's a little, he's a little more complicated than that. And uh, it's just, it's strange to me that he would, I know he wants to get back to work. I know, again, he's got other people he has to pay besides his writers, but it's, it's just, it's just a weird look. Yeah, and that quote that he gave where he said, you know, I, I feel like there's only two options and there's no nuance. You're either for the strike or you're with Trump, and that's not, that's not true. at all what the situation is. Like, you made the decision yourself, and Drew Barrymore, presumably under no pressure from anyone else, made the decision herself, even though she cited, you know, oh, well, we started this show in the middle of a pandemic, and we've always weathered tough times. Well, like, you couldn't really control the pandemic and how that affected you, but you can control what you do. Right, and they... Look, I thought TV was ridiculous and weird during the pandemic, but they they had the technology to pivot and they could continue to pay their writers. So I, I don't think that I think that the dichotomy that Mar has set up is it's really odd because it's not you know I know plenty of people or at least there are some people who are pro Trump who think the writer strike is you know who hate the greedy um, producers and who hate Amazon and Apple and all and the and the, the companies that are being struck against. So I just think that's that's kind of a a false dichotomy, you know, and it's, and, and if you look at what the other late night talk show hosts are doing, you know, um, Jimmy Kimmel, Stephen Colbert, 
John Oliver, uh, Jimmy Fallon, the now maligned Jimmy Fallon, but at least he's paid. At least he's like not, he's not scabbing. Right, right. But they're, they're hosting a, like a YouTube show calling, call, called Strike Force 5. And, and admittedly, I'm, I'm about as um, likely to watch um, outtakes from Jake Paul fights on YouTube as I am to watch Strike Force 5, you know? <laughs> but, you know, I think, I think that in this case, even though like I don't love any of those shows, I think they're on the right side. Yeah, yeah, and it's just the I saw some speculation that maybe it was more of a like well a, a studio level choice of well we've got to get some stuff going so what can we possibly do to you know get more revenue going this fall because there's going to be nothing coming up but I can't imagine that they would just make those decisions unilaterally without talking to someone like that has as much uh, stake in it as Drew Barrymore. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then and then I, I know that you haven't been following this, but I, I'm uh, at, we talk about Jeopardy a lot on the show. I'm, I'm uh, you know habitually and a former cast member of the Jeopardy verse, and Jeopardy has resumed production um, and is airing sort of new episodes. They're you you know that's a written show as well, and they're using like pre-written material from older seasons. And they're bringing back contestants from older seasons. Unfortunately, not as far back. Even if they did give me a call and say, I want you to come back, I, you know, I'm a WGA member, I would have to say no. Yeah. So just using old questions that they didn't use in episodes? Yeah, or maybe even recycling. They do recycle material anyway, so maybe they're just recycling stuff. And then Maya Bialik, who is one of the co-hosts, uh, you know, is all, is a WGA mm-hmm. member and possibly a SAG member. As, uh, I mean, a SAG member for sure, possibly a WGA member. She she refuses to participate. But Ken Jennings, who is a writer um, and written a lot of books, uh, has decided to host. He said that Alex Trebek hosted during the last writer's strike. So he wants to honor Alex's legacy. And that, that feels like a bit of a hedge, to be honest. I'm like, be consistent, you know? You know, everyone, everyone has to feel the depri- deprivation of our beloved... Uh, televised entertainment. You know, there's not a lot of material out there that uh, can survive. I, I suppose maybe you, you know, press your luck could could tape episodes without writers. But but you know, Elizabeth Banks is the host there, so she's not going to cross that line. So basically, like you know, we all have to uh, suffer this together until the producers go ahead and give the unions what they want is what it comes down to. And I, so I just find I just find these decisions by people who I wouldn't say I like revere. Bill Maher or Ken Jennings or Drew Barrymore, but they're not people who like I revile right at all. And so it's just strange to see people ma- making these choices that can't really, at the end of the day, be anything about their own bottom line, right? No, yeah, and just you know, looking at the upcoming just dearth of everything in the fall and figuring out how what's the quickest, cheapest way to get advertising money back and talk shows have largely been that for you know decades it's gonna be bleak it's gonna be bleak you know it's gonna be a lot of sports we're gonna be watching a lot of sports a lot of you know it is football season my dude so and you know and just a lot of back catalog stuff um a lot of reality tv um and you know the i will say that you know there in fall oscar uh film season is upon us we've been covering film festivals and we're going to talk about toronto in a second so there will be for people like you and me who love quote-unquote quality films we're going to have a nice few months and then the desert will uh, will sweep over us. It's 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 just kind of strange. Uh, but Jake, I uh, I appreciate you uh, covering Lafair Barrymore. There hasn't been a, a Lafair Barrymore like this since the 1920s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like such old fashioned Hollywood. The Barrymore incident. I'm like, oh yeah, 
<laughs> like, oh, you bring someone in a time machine from 1927. That's the only thing they're going to recognize. And uh, yeah, and ho- hopefully, um, hopefully this strike will be settled soon. We won't have to deal with this crap much longer. Yeah, I hope so. All right. Thanks, Jake. All right. Thanks. Stephen Garrett, at last, has returned to the podcast. It's been weeks since we've talked to Stephen Garrett. I was wondering if he was still alive, but then he emerged and said he was going to the Toronto International Film Festival. And now, not only did he go, he's returned, and he's here today to talk to me about it. Hello, Stephen. Hello. You can always coax me out with the temptation of seeing a ton of movies in a small amount of time in a North American city. Yeah, well, that is what you do for a living, so... (laughs) Twist my arm, I guess. So Toronto is the, sort of the second major film festival of the fall festival season. We covered the Venice Film Festival on our previous episode, and now we are we are in Canada, uh, less perhaps uh, glamorous than the Lido, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> Although one of the most preposterous statements I heard this week was from Alexander Payne, whose movie The Holdovers uh, debuted. I think maybe at Telluride and then made its its Toronto debut. And he said, uh, talk about playing to the audience. He said, you know, I consider Toronto to be the Paris of North America. Oh, really? And everybody's like, yeah. And I was like, huh? What a, Jesus, stop pandering. That's off. That's a bad, what a clumsy pander. Who would say that? If anything is the Paris of North America, it's Montreal. Well, but he said very quickly, not Montreal, Toronto. That's the Paris. I'm like, no. bro, I don't think you've been to Paris if you think they <laughs> look alike. I would, say, I would say the closest thing to pa- the Paris of North America would be New York City. <laughs> just, just an idea there. Anyway, all right. So but you but all right, so you were in the Paris of North America seeing movies. I was. I was, yes. I gotta say, we, we we murmured about this a little bit before we started recording here. You know, I there was a lot of buzz in the film media about the movies at Venice. And I, I just not like I didn't see anything about what was going on in Toronto. There were obviously a couple of high-profile premieres, but it felt a little um, felt a little muted to me. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I, I, Venice always eats Toronto's lunch, and Toronto very politely uh, scoops up the sloppy seconds and takes whatever's left in the bread bowl and, and you know, shows that as well. And um, Toronto was originally conceived of and, and referred to as the Festival of Festivals. So it was more known as an aggregator festival than it was a festival for big, splashy premieres. And that all changed, I think, in 1999, the biggest, most memorable year, because American Beauty debuted there, and that went on to win the Oscar. And then suddenly, Toronto, so this is dating, what, 24 years ago, Toronto suddenly became a buzzy Oscar festival where the studios realized, oh, if we navigate this right, we can debut our big end-of-year releases to a very friendly crowd and very friendly, polite people, press, you know, in, in Canada. And then they can start their awards campaigns in earnest. And Venice was always around, but, and would always have, you know, kind of interesting, always had great movies. But I feel like Venice started sniffing around and saying, hey, we can do this better than you. We're going to start muscling our way as well. And so about 10 years ago, they really started in earnest, uh, kind of eating Toronto's lunch. But Toronto, was uh, quite happy to coexist in a way so that it wouldn't get a world premiere, but it would get a North American premiere. This year, weirdly enough, and it may be because of SAG-AFTRA and the Writers Guild and the fact that there was a lot of talent that couldn't come um, and the studios can bring their movies or move their movies out of the way to next year, you know, like 
Contenders uh, and Dune Part Two. That I think I feel like the studios might have said, you know, we're going to take a mulligan. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll open certain things overseas, like poor things, you know, which won the top prize in Venice. And then, yeah, we're going to skip uh, Toronto, and then we'll play in that example the New York Film Festival. So New York actually was scooping a lot of the hot Venice titles, and I think that uh, movies like Ferrari uh, would have played at Toronto. Movies like Poor Things would have played at Toronto any other normal year. For, for some reason, this year, it did not have those movies. All right, so so the Paris of North America did not get the uh, royal treatment. Um, let's talk about what was there, though. I mean, you said that you didn't see the Miyazaki, what was supposed to be his last movie, but now there's rumors he's going to keep going because he's gotten so much love for this. But there was a new uh, animated movie from the maker of My Neighbor, Totoro, and Howl's Moving Castle and all that. That's right, yes. What is it, The Boy and the Heron? I... I, I uh... I personally am not a huge fan. I totally respect people who are, and I had other things on my schedule, so I went to something else. And also, it was a madhouse getting into any of those screenings, and I said, you know what? Enjoy. So uh, that's going to the New York Film Festival. I figure I'll catch up with it there, and then I'll eye roll and go, I don't know. But uh, anyway, call me a heathen, I guess. Enjoy this year's um, front runner for Best Animated Feature. Yeah, exactly right. Or just fill out your ballot and just assume it's going to win Best Animated Feature. So you know, exactly. I mean, uh, now this it's it's going to take Spider for the Spider Verse down. Um, there was a Richard Linklater movie this year. Yeah, it was wonderful. Really? Uh, so it's called Hitman. It was called Hitman, and this is an example. I mean, I'm going to get in the weeds again. It actually debuted in Venice, but then it very dutifully showed up in Toronto, the way that a lot of these films normally do. And um, this felt very business as usual. Linklater was there promoting it, uh, so I guess he got a waiver or who knows what. I, I, actually, the movie, I think, has not been picked up yet, so I think it's going to be in the midst of a, If it's not in the midst of a bidding war right now, it will be very soon. It plays through the roof. It's incredibly entertaining. Uh, Glenn Powell, I think, is the... Uh, the star of it, and also co-wrote like Glenn it. Um, was was a sort of a member of the Richard Linklater ensemble, but he he kind of and and he's been a character actor in films for a while, but he kind of um, kind of came to the public's attention in the Top Gun Maverick. He was one of the, he was the kind of cocky rival pilot to Miles Teller. And That's right. Was super charismatic in that. Yes, yes, and he is in this too, and and it's it's a very funny role. I mean, it's a bit of a Walter Mitty type story. It's a guy who's a very meek, mild mannered teacher at a college in New Orleans who kind of moonlights helping out the uh, police department with their surveillance equipment because he's kind of an electronics guy. And uh, there's a point where there's a pinch and the guy who pretends to be the hitman is not there. So he has to be the one to go undercover in a sting operation to get somebody who's trying to pay someone to kill or whatever it is, you know, fill in the blank, wife, lover, boss, you know. It sounds very old school. Like, it sounds like kind of like an 80s comedy, 80s and early, <laughs> right? It kind of is. It's very school of rock, you know. It's very link ladder. It's very 80s comedy. The way school of rock was an 80s comedy. There's such something kind of delightful, and I, I kind of love this kind of side of link ladder, that his guile and his love of just you know, kind of a great idea and just kind of following it through and seeing where it goes. It, also, Glenn Powell, Powell is clearly having a great time because, you know, he's going to his little actor dress-up box and pretending to be like, you know, a dozen different flavors of, you know, scummy, scuzzy person who, you know, pretends to be a hitman. And one of the things they say in the movie, and Linklater said after the, you know, in the Q&A, is that hitman, this is based on an article, it's a true life story for the most part, they embellish, but, you know, is that there? there's no such thing as a hitman. Like, the cops constantly are uh, creating sting operations where they, 
they convict people who try to hire a hitman, but apparently there are no hitmen. Like, no one's ever arrested a hitman. So either they're amazing at what they do, and they just, you know, like ninjas, they fade into the night, or they don't exist. They're kind of overrepresented in movies for something that doesn't exist. Very much so. But it's a wonderful sort of, you know, avatar for this character's kind of uh, hibernating personality. You know, he doesn't really get a chance to really discover who he can be or who he is really and then the movie becomes a very lighthearted meditation on what is it that makes us us you know and not to make put too fine a point on or make it sound philosophical but it it kind of has those elements uh, without losing any of its entertainment value it's it's so much fun it's really great and romantic too it's a love story i'll say say this you know that i mean i don't know if it's going to be a nationwide hit i live in austin richard link lottery is the head of the austin film film So there's going to be <laughs> hitman mania will will hit hard um, in in my circles. Amen. So let's see, we got a couple more here. Um, we already talked about the Harmony Kareen movie last week, so I think we're going to pass by that. Are, are there a couple more um, titles that you think people should be uh, looking out for this fall? Yeah, you know, they, okay. So there were a few that um, it's. <laughs> I don't want to say these are movies about rape because one of them is literally trying to explain and define that word as not being about race. And then the other is about a character who like resists with every fiber of his being being called a black writer. But I'm going to lump them together. Uh, I talk about American fiction and origin. American fiction, both of them based on books, by the way. American fiction is a, is a fantastically wicked, really angry, but really funny um, look at a curmudgeonly, again, a professor, a lot of professors this, uh, this week in uh, Toronto and movies, who is an author. Curmudgeonly black professor. And, and, and before I even saw the name, I was like, Jeffrey Wright? Jeffrey Wright, exactly. And he's wonderful, but he's also, you know, that's his wheelhouse. And um, he hates being pigeonholed as a black writer. There's a funny scene where he's in like a Barnes & Noble or something, and he's scooped up all of his books and he's moved them out of the African-American studies section into just like the regular section. Actually, he wants to put it in mythology. That's how he thinks of himself. But anyway, one one dark, uh, you know, kind of self-loathing night, he writes uh, a basically a parody book that has all the worst tropes of African-American kind of pop culture. And it becomes this runaway success. And then he's like, he's trapped in a pseudonym. And his pseudonym is what is it? Stag R. Lee. I mean, it's really, it's hilarious. And he pretends to be this like convict who's you know the every every the more profane he gets the more the publishing industry loves him it's a it's a fantastic it's a fantastic story um that sounds like something i would enjoy seeing um i don't necessarily think that it 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 spells um all-time box office sensation no 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 this is definitely like but you know it's it's more of a uh more mainstream art house than it is art house but it's not hugely mainstream the one that's really magnificent, I've got to say, Ava DuVernay's movie Origins, which, um, I mean, I, I thought Selma was terrific. Uh, I haven't really seen any of her other films, so I, I just I don't really have much of a read. I mean, I've seen bits of some of her other stuff and thought it was interesting, but um, nothing like her adaptation of the book cast, Isabel Wilkerson's book. So she made a, a doc, it's a docudrama, you said? But this is the weird thing. First of all, it, you're adapting a book that's basically an essay book, right? It's a it's a work of nonfiction. It's a thesis kind of. It's it's Wilkerson kind of wrestling with these ideas, and that is adapted into a movie. How do you do that? Well, the way that Duvernay adapts the movie because she wants to make a movie that wrestles with these themes. So how do you do it? Well, 
she basically turned it into a docudrama where she's following the author and it's really her. I mean, it's not, it's an actor playing, but it's her character is Isabel Worthenson. And um, it follows her journey from conceiving of the book to actually wrestling through the ideas and figuring out how to, what her thesis is and how to flesh it out. And it sees her traveling around the country or around the world, really going to India, going to Germany, studying Nazi era lectures and this and that. I mean, it's, it's really, it's like an essay film more than anything else. Uh, but it is also a melodrama too. And in the sense that the author had real life tragedies happen to her in terms of personal loss. And that is reflected in the movie. And that gives the movie this kind of dramatic, emotional heft that you want movies to have. So she really, she threaded this needle so unexpectedly and wonderfully. And I, I, I have to say, like, I mean, hats off to her. It, it just really shows her strength as as a, a filmmaker. It was so unexpected and, and really wonderful. And that's coming out, I think, Net, no, no, uh, uh, Neon. Neon has it. So it will be getting a year-end release. A theatrical release in, in, in some cities near you at uh, Origin from Ava DuVernay. A uh, little short uh, Ava DuVernay fact here, Stephen. She is the most recent person and one of the few people ever to have her own Ben and Jerry's ice cream flavor. That, <laughs> That's right. I, I was shocked to see Ava DuVernay's lights caramel action. <laughs> she, she's going to have like her own, uh, you know, Lego figure soon. I'm sure. I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I, I wrote uh, something on my Facebook feed, uh, making fun of it. I'm, we came up with some other uh, pretty, pretty funny ideas um, about uh, a director's special Ben and Jerry's ice cream flavors. Let's see. We have the caramel of Dr. Caligari that I came up with. <laughs> Stanley Kubrick's full melon jacket. <laughs> full melon jacket. John Ford's stage crunch. Oh, I like that. I need that. Quentin Tarantino's feats and treats. <laughs> I like that. The Film Globe contributor uh, Sharon Vane came up with Martin Scorsese's Mean Sweets, which is good. Ooh, boy, that's a that's a mic drop. Also, the Irish Mint. <laughs> that's pretty good. Where someone else came up with Ari Aster's Mint Summer. Ooh, oh, these are bangers. I came up with a couple good ones. Um, Steven Spielberg's Raisins of the Lost Ark. <laughs> oh, God, gross. <laughs> right, the, the worst fruit to put in an ice cream. Also, you shouldn't be putting fruit in ice cream. But anyway, uh, let's see, History of the Swirled Part One. <laughs> I don't know about no cookies and cream for old men. I'm not. I'm not so. <laughs> and now John Singleton is dead, but he still can have uh, his flavor: boysenberry in the hood. <laughs> oh, this one's good. Wow, Stephen Freer's delicious liaisons. <laughs> Call Ben or Jerry right now. Well, but we digress. The real uh, topic of this segment has been the Toronto International Film Festival. Can I mention one more really quickly? Dream Scenario. That crazy Nicolas Cage movie is so funny. There's more fake ice cream flavors, Stephen. Yes, go ahead. Tell me one more. Dream Scenario could be Cream Scenario. No, this movie, uh, Dream Scenario by this uh, Danish guy, Christopher Borgli. He's basically gunning for... Uh, the director of Poor Things, Yorgos Lanthimos. He's got a, a rival in terms of world cinema and surreal uh, nightmares that he puts together. So Dream Scenario is such a funny, again, it's another professor. This time, um, he starts appearing in people's dreams. And I, I feel like the less you know, the more you're going to enjoy it. But it is so hilarious and weird. 
and delightful and dark and funny and twisted. But he literally, he's like almost like a Freddy Krueger type. He just starts popping in people's dreams. But he's like the meekest, mildest person. It's very Charlie Kaufman. It's very Spike Jones. It's fantastic. Uh, and it's coming out at some point this fall. We have engaged the Borgly. Uh, all right, Stephen, uh, thank you so much uh, for staying uh, on top of the world of film and uh, for surviving uh, your week in the Paris of North America. <laughs> we will talk to you soon. All right, thanks. Sometime last year, I cursed an old college friend of mine, uh, Adam Hirschfelder, who is a liberal man living in Marin County, California. <laughs> and I, I told him, I asked him to write a review of the new season of Yellowstone, uh, which at, at the time was is experiencing quite a, uh, a boom. And uh, he did and did a nice job, but then became deeply obsessed with Yellowstone and the Yellowstone cinematic uh, television universe, sorry, and uh, and the works of Taylor Sheridan, the creator of Yellowstone. So I, I basically ruined Adam's life because now all he does all day is sit around and think about Yellowstone and Taylor Sheridan-related products. And he's written another piece for us about Lioness, Special Ops Lioness, which isn't a Yellowstone show, but it is a Taylor Sheridan show, and has been following drama around Yellowstone. There's been a lot of drama uh, this summer, and Adam is here to talk to me about all these Taylor Sheridan-related developments. Hello, Adam. Hello, Neil. Good to talk to you. Yes, you definitely did uh, ruin my life. I spent most of my time, as I've talked to you about, you know, on obscure websites and Twitter feeds and TikToks on just on all things Yellowstone. I mean, it's uh, it, it's been a it's been a crazy summer for it because you know originally we were supposed to have the fifth season or the second half of the fifth season. Um, this summer, and it's been emptiness until the uh, mixture of the Kevin Costner divorce drama and then this show Lioness, which kind of brought everything to the fore. So it's been it's been a busy uh, couple weeks, but um, yes, I, I spend most of my time studying Yellowstone and Sheridan-rama. You're like, if you were a college professor, you could teach a class. Um, so let's start with, before we go uh, on with the uh, drama surrounding um, Yellowstone, let's talk a little bit about Special Ops Lioness, yeah. which actually kind of a hit for Paramount Plus. And but this is but this is like a, a little bit of a departure from Taylor Sheridan who kind of likes kind of western style melodrama. This is more like a CIA global spy thriller thing. Yeah, you know, on one end, you know, it's a basic, you know, CIA spy thriller. Um, which, you know, as I had mentioned, you know, we've certainly seen before, but this was, you know, interesting and, you know, Sheridan goes heavy on human relationships. There's a slight Western angle where the new CIA recruit is from, you know, escapes an abusive uh, situation in Oklahoma and uh, finds herself uh, as part of the CIA after her escape from that. So, you know, there's a little Sheridan stuff on the Western, but, uh, you know, he sometimes his directing is, you know, or his writing is very, it's a, there's a heaviness at times, some over-emotionality, um, but definitely a watchable program and exciting. I mean, heck, and then you got, um, um, you know, Nicole Kidman is in it, Zoe Saldana, I mean, you know, quality entertainment, good, solid. Morgan Freeman. And Morgan Freeman for a few, you know, certainly for a few minutes. So, you know, this is good entertainment, solid, though, you know, I, 
as I said, we've kind of done it before. I mean, we've certainly done this before. And I guess there's a just a gigantic appetite for CIA thrillers, uh, which is all well and good. I watch them. I've enjoyed them. But, you know, you wonder about Sheridan dabbling in this world. And, you know, what's interesting is that they changed the name of it. It was going to be called just Lioness. And then a few months before it went uh, live, it became Special Ops Lioness. And folks aren't sure why. There will be a second season of this. But will it fo- focus on the Lioness? Or the special? is it a Special Ops franchise, which will look, you know, and do kind of eight-part series, you know, an anthology type thing on different special CIA programs. So it's still a little unclear, a lot of quiet about it. But, you know, and Lioness, which was its own thing, which recruits... Uh, CIA operatives to be, um, you know, to befriend uh, the wives and girlfriends of terrorists. You know, it's you know, certainly kind of interesting. The question is, you know, is there going to be another? Is there going to be another uh, season of that with the focus, or going to be a special ops of some, uh, you know, some other angle? All right. So you have the uh, new Taylor uh, Sheridan. I was going to say Taylor Swift, but it's a Taylor Taylor Sheridan. You know, it's funny. The New York Times said it was going to hire a Taylor Swift reporter or USA Today did. And so, but I've hired you as my Taylor Sheridan reporter, (laughs) right? And uh, there's been a lot of drama. Well, first of all, Taylor Sheridan gave an obnoxious interview in Vanity Fair or New York Magazine somewhere when the writer's strike started. Yep. And then he didn't need a writing staff that he could just do it all himself. And didn't need a writer's room. Right. Right. And when you watch his product, sometimes it does, you know, it's, it does feel like uh, maybe he could have used someone else. Uh, in the room telling him, eh, maybe don't include that scene, you know? Yeah. He's a lot. He he, he is a lot, you know, and, 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 and that big interview that came out was like the last, you know, the, one of the most recent big Sheridan interviews, you know, I think the last question interview was some people say like, you know, you act like a God around the set. You know, there was some de- debate about that, that he's, you know, you know, bigger than the stars and bigger than everything, which led to obviously some stuff with Kevin Costner. Um, but yes, his, his his viewpoint. Yeah, I think his his writing probably could be helped by a writer's room. I, I think so. That's the funny thing. Some of the stuff is just a touch overwrought, although, you know, interesting and gripping. And, you know, I can see that, you know, in Linus, it's a, you know, fun show to watch. All right. Well, so let's talk about this Kevin Costner situation, right? So, yeah. I mean, I understand that it's the product of uh, one man's creative vision, but there's no way that... Yellowstone, the phenomenon, could have existed without the absolute star-powered Western charisma of Kevin Costner, who just who is like you know you can believe that he's an actual modern cowboy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was as I said you know was more or less Yellowstone. Look at you know neo westerns, all this kind of stuff. It would have just been an average Western without Costner. It just it drew attention to it. You had to pay attention, you know. And, Costner plays the perfect role for himself, you know, and who he is, his own history. I, I think they got, you know, I think Sheridan's gotten a little confused and or Paramount Plus that it was, you know, Sheridan the star uh, as opposed to Costner. So what happened? What happened with Kevin Costner this summer? It's still not entirely clear. Somehow in the lead up to season five, they decide to split up season five into two parts, a 5A and a 5B. It was originally going to be a 10-part season and then it became a 14 part season seven episodes on the front half seven episodes on the back half now a big thing that happens um is that kevin costner wants to do his own movies that he's you know i guess with a renewed career and so forth he signs a four movie deal on his own project called horizon and he supposedly works with paramount plus to try to or paramount the company 
to allow him to shoot for Horizon, his uh, film Horizon. It was a four-part series, and he wanted to shoot the first couple and then do it around uh, Yellowstone season five. And then there's some confusion around what happens when they split the season up. And that's where things go off kilter. And then they, you know, writer's strike comes. So there's a lot of confusion and there's not been one straight story about what's going on. But it was around the shooting of 5B, the back half of season five, and where he was shooting with Horizon, which he claims was done, that the problems come. And the big thing that I've seen is that he says that scripts were not done and ready for 5B. Now, is that true? Was the timing off? Why would he try to get out of his what is his sort of late career signature role? Right. I mean, there, there's that. And there's just a lot of pieces. I mean, the, and then the other piece of this, of course, is that Sheridan gets so spread among many different properties by Paramount, which saw him do a great job on Yellowstone that, you know, then he did the prequels from Yellowstone, which were terrific and built up the stories. But then they spread them thin on other things. Lioness. We have this fall coming program called Bass Reeves, which he's working on, which is kind of a spinoff of the Yellowstone prequel 1883, although it's not tied to the Yellowstone story in any way. And they have him working on other programs with Sylvester Stallone, and he's drawing in, you know, Hollywood talent. And I could see, you know, the Paramount folks are just saying, hey, Sheridan's, you know, drawing great talent. We'll just keep having him do all these things. Well, right. So so they were... Um... One of the things that was rumored about this delayed season of Yellowstone was that they were going to dump Costner and bring in Matthew McConaughey. While I do agree that Matthew McConaughey, you know, at least in his uh, persona, would be a good fit. He can certainly play a cowboy and certainly, you know, can put on an accent. You can't really replace John Dutton. (laughs) And that's how the summer kind of started or, you know, late spring, summer, all of a sudden there's these rumors that Matthew McConaughey is going to replace John Dutton. And no one was really clear. Was it a new program? Was it another side story? You know, the Four Sixes Ranch in Texas. Was that going to be the McConaughey story? Was he literally going to replace Kevin Costner's John Dutton? And and this Yellowstone property is, you know, this is huge, huge stuff. Hang on. It's like saying, like, season five of The Sopranos halfway through, we're like, you know, we're having some contract problems with Gandolfini. We're just going to replace him with Danny DeVito. Yeah, and then, you know, there's back and forth, and then Paramount says, you know what, Yellowstone's going to end after season five, and that was the big news back in May, that after season five, or the second half of season five, Yellowstone is done, and then there's going to be a new Yellowstone program, likely a sequel, but still no lack of clarity, and hey, yeah, we're talking to McConaughey, like all this weird news without a whole lot of specifics, and You know, it's a mixture of the entertainment industry now, the demands of streaming for content, 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 which obviously underlies a big piece of the uh, strikes now. But all these things create this incredible mess on a huge TV property. And I don't think people don't quite understand until maybe last week when it became clear, maybe two weeks ago, in this, you know, crazy divorce trial that Costner's in of what a mess has been created. How how are they going to end Yellowstone without Dutton? Like, oh, he got in a car accident? Maybe they could replace him um, with Richard Kind. Or, or, or like, uh, he's, he's probably available. Or John Hamm. John Hamm would be good. Yeah, John, right, John Hamm, like, like with The Sopranos, like, this thing was, like, significant. So, like, you know, what's going on? I think it's a big story and hasn't totally been written or explained. There's going to be a lot over the next few months um, whether it be lawsuits, additional ones outside of Costner's divorce trial, 
is he going to, you know, he, he rumors in his literally testimony about, you know, child support that he's going to likely end up in court against Paramount because of what happened in the back season of five. And they had originally talked to him about doing season six and seven. All, all I know, Adam, is that no matter what happens, you're going to be all over it because you are oh, America's yeah. foremost Taylor Sheridan reporter. No, no, no you can, I can promise you I, I will be all I mean, I literally have no, I, I do nothing else but just study what happens with this. And thankfully, this summer, there was a lot to study. It's nice that we can keep you occupied in your senescence. <laughs> and, and we look forward to further observations um, from America's most obsessed Yellowstone fan, Adam Hirschwelder. Thank you. Thank you, as always, Neil, for keeping me busy. All right. Thanks, Adam Hirschfelder. You can find Special Ops Lioness and Yellowstone and all the works of Taylor Sheridan on Paramount Plus and intermittently on other streaming services as well. Also, thanks to Jake Harris for talking to me about developments in the Hollywood strikes and to Stephen Garrett for going to the Toronto Film Festival and covering it and talking to us about it. I am Neil Pollack. I am the host of this program and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Don't cross any picket lines this week, and I will talk to you soon. Original Production.